It's amazing. Today, I see these lights every week, and today, they're just hitting me in a different spot. So if I kind of look at you occasionally squinting, that's, I think, what it is. But if you're kind of a, a local football fan, and this has not been a year for winning. Um, so uh, both uh, my Raiders and uh, Satan's 49ers <laughs> are, are not doing well. And, <laughs> right, right. Are not doing well. Um, but the truth is that um, the saying, it's not whether you win or lose, but how you play the game is really kind of a polarizing statement in our culture. Um, For those who are on the winning side, they usually say that's just something that those who are losing say. Um, On the other hand, the truth is, is that winning apart from character and integrity isn't really winning at all. The truth is that God is concerned about both. He is concerned not about the games that we play, but he's concerned about our walk with him. And he wants us to experience his victory so that we might enjoy the freedom of his salvation and the power of his presence. And victory in Christ is the victory that God is looking for in our life. That there is power over sin. That sin is being defeated And that our record is no longer a losing record against sin, but it's a winning record against sin. Victory in Christ is what God wants for our lives. And so God is concerned about winning, but it's about winning in him. It's not the way that we think of it within our culture. And so God's concerned about the outcome and he's concerned about the way that we live and we walk. And so this morning we're going to continue forward in our study in 1 Samuel 7. And we're going to look at 1 Samuel 7 verses 1 through 17. So let's go ahead and do that. We're going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Let's stand together as we, we read this passage. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to follow along in your Bibles. If not, we'll have it up on the screen, and you can follow along on the screen. But this is what it says. It says, And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines." So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mitzpah, and I will pray for the Lord. I will pray the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mitzpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mitzpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mitzpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. 
And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mitzvah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. And Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel restored to Israel. From Ekron to Gath and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mitzpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he returned to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. Lord God, as we look at your scripture this morning, May we be reminded that you are a God worthy of praise. That in our shortcomings, in our failures, in our weaknesses, that you are a God who desires us to experience your victory. God, that our victory in you, our freedom from sin, our growing righteousness is not the result of our talent and our abilities, our strength, but it has everything to do with you. Father, thank you that you strengthen us. Thank you that you are a God who forgives. Thank you that you're a God who restores and redeems and makes new. Lord, thank you for the power of your word. Lord, bring forth your word in power this morning. May your words come through, not mine. And may it be you who does your work. May your spirit have your way in our hearts this morning. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Experiencing God's victory in our lives begins with genuine repentance, leading us to trust in his character rather than our own. Experiencing God's victory in our lives begins with genuine repentance, leading us to trust in his character rather than our own. This victory that we have in Christ, it starts with repentance. And that repentance moves us to a place, leads us to a place where we trust in God's character, not our own. 
Over the past 26 years of ministry, I've often heard people share their frustration of continuing failure in a specific area of sin. Times in my own life experiencing that same struggle. And then there are times that a person will say as they're struggling in that, I've, I've given my life to Christ. Why doesn't God just take this temptation away from me? I've given it, so why doesn't he just completely remove it? And when it doesn't happen the way that we think it should or the way that we want, there are some that will continue by saying, I don't know that trusting Jesus is really enough. Is it really enough to trust Jesus to overcome the power and work of sin in my own life? Well, the truth is, is that 1 Samuel 7 gives us an answer. In verses 1 through 2, it tells us that the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim. It says, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. The Israelites had gone into battle as we witnessed in 1 Samuel chapter 4 with an arrogance that so long as the ark of the Lord was with them, they would experience victory. Their prideful misbelief led them to their defeat and the removal of God's presence. Now, and some of us can kind of feel like in some ways that the Israelites there are foolish, but in some ways don't we often do the same thing? Because I have God, if I enter into sin, he'll just forgive me anyway. God's kind of like the forgiveness genie in the bottle, right? He's the one that says, listen, if God's forgiveness is, is, is good enough to, to, to overcome all sin in my life, then what's the difference? I remember when I was in high school, that was a question that I used to ask myself. God's going to forgive us anyway. Why not just do it and ask forgiveness later, right? In fact, don't we often have these little sayings that say it's better to ask for forgiveness later than to ask for permission now? That's actually flawed thinking, isn't it? Because Christ actually tells us, listen, we need to come to him first, right? We seek his best first in the hopes that we don't actually have to ask for forgiveness, that we walk in righteousness. Now, I'm not putting those two things together, that asking for permission and sinning in the same category. But God desires us to come with him with a heart that says, no, my desire is not to say I can ask for forgiveness later. The desire is to know what is right and to walk in that righteousness first. See, the Israelites were prideful. They believed that as long as they had the ark with him, that God's presence would be simply enough. I think sometimes we take that same stance in our personal walk with God. As long as God is right here with us, what difference? And the Israelites are walking in that same pride, that same misunderstanding, that same misbelief. I think too often we see obedience as something that we have to do rather than something that we get to do. See, our response to Christ is to be a response that understands who God is and what God is doing and how God is working 
And even more importantly, his greatness and his goodness. When we understand who God is, it'll move us in a direction towards him rather than towards ourselves. The Israelites didn't understand who God really was. And in 1 Samuel 6, it says, after seven months in captivity, the ark was returned to the Israelites. And they rejoiced. And what we saw there, though, was that even in their rejoicing over the fact that the ark of the covenant was now brought, excuse me, the ark of the Lord was brought back, 70 men of Israel experienced the judgment of God because they treated the ark of God with a lack of worship. They treated him with contempt. Now, what's amazing about this is they're treating God with contempt, but the very first thing that they want to do is get God out of there, don't they? Rather than deal with their sin in that moment, they say, listen, send them off to Kiriath-Jerim. We want them nowhere near here. So what do they do? They call their brothers and say, hey, come take this hot box. It's kind of what it's like. I don't know what to do with it. You take it. And that's what they do. And it says there that the the men of Kiriath-Jerim come down and they take them. It says that when they take them, they bring him, this ark of the Lord, into the presence to the house of Abinadab. And it says they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge over the ark of the Lord. And so Eliezer is serving as a priest over the ark. But then it says, from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Here's what was happening. They had the ark of the Lord in their presence, and yet they grieved and mourned over the fact that God was not at work in power within them and amongst them. For 20 years, They mourned and grieved because the power of God was not being experienced by them. Well, 2 Corinthians tells us this. It says, for godly grief or sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Well, notice what happens. In verse 3, it says, And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So where does he begin? Somewhere in there, they had made this decision of how do we get to experience the victory of God? How do we experience the power of God at work amongst us and in our lives. And Samuel says, listen, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, he starts there and says, listen, that's the place you begin. Are you serious about that? Are you genuinely serious about turning your heart to the Lord? That's the question that he's asking. And then he goes on and he provides an answer. He says, if you're genuinely going to return to the Lord, I want to show you how. 
one of the things in our lives, we can often ask that question, but the, the real question is, is are we really looking for that? Sometimes we want God's power in our life simply because we don't want the pain. Sometimes we want God's power because we want to get out of the uncomfortable situation that we're in. But the real question is, is do we want to experience the power of God in our lives because we want to glorify God with our lives? With every aspect of our life. And Samuel starts with that question. If you're really returning to the Lord with all your heart. What he begins to provide to us is this very practical guide of experiencing God's victory in our life. And so we see here a few essentials to experiencing God's victory in our life. They're as apical as they were then to now. And so the first thing that we see here is he says here in verse 3 and 4, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. It's genuine repentance. Genuine repentance. Now the Greek word for repentance is the word metanoia, which literally means a changed mind. But this changed mind comes from a changed heart. We see that right here when he says, with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. So what gets in the way of genuine repentance in our lives? Idols. Other things that are vying for the attention of our worship. Things that are distracting us from the worship of God are the things that are moving us away from genuine repentance. Now, our salvation is based upon repentance and belief. Jesus tells us that we are to repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. That we, as followers of Christ, are to repent of our sin and believe on Christ for our salvation. But God also desires that we are a repenting people. Our hearts are ones that need to be constantly turning towards the Lord. In fact, if we have genuinely repented, our hearts are going to be returning to the Lord. It doesn't mean they're not going to ever waver. It does mean that they may waver, but then there is a moving back, a returning to the Lord. It's a setting aside of those idols. Kevin DeYoung describes it this way. He says, you change, you change your mind about yourself. I'm not fundamentally a good person deep down. I'm not the center of the universe. I'm not the king of the world or even my life. You change your mind about sin. I'm Responsible for my actions. My past hurts do not excuse my present failings. My offenses against God and against others are not trivial. I do not live or think or feel as I should. And you change your mind about God. He's trustworthy. His word is sure. He's able to forgive and to save. I believe in his son Jesus Christ. I owe him my life and my allegiance. He is my king and my sovereign and he wants what is best for me. I believe it. 
And this repentance leads to a change in behavior. It says, I'm going to put aside these idols. I'm going to turn away from these other things that I so desperately want to worship. One of the best ways to identify an idol is what do we turn to when we're tired, when we're discouraged, when we're fearful? What do we turn to that gives us value? If something is giving us value other than Christ, it's okay to receive value from other things, but is it more important? Is my approval of men greater than my approval of God or from God? Isaiah 44, 9 through 18 describes idols this way. Now, it's easy in our culture today to think of idols kind of in the context of like large Buddha dolls. The problem with that is is that our culture is riddled with idols. It's just not made of wood and stone often. But the truth is is that there can be idols that we worship that are wood and stone. They could be the buildings and the homes that we live in. They could be the accolades of man. They could be all sorts of things. But listen to how Isaiah describes the idols. He said, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into a figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it, he burns in the fire. He's saying, idols are worthless. Those things that we fashion, we're not even realizing that the things that we're we're being drawn to, that we're giving worship to, are the things that are actually separating us from God. He's saying, listen, know those idols that are present in your life and put them away. It's important. That process of identifying idolatry in our own lives is important because it prevents us from living repentant lives. Tim Keller defines an idol as anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagine more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I feel my life has meaning. 
Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something. But perhaps the best one is worship. It's anything that we worship other than the Lord. And so Samuel is calling the Israelites to turn from their idols and to turn towards God. And it says here in 1 Samuel, it says that they listened and says, so the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. If we're going to experience God's victory, it begins with genuine repentance. Notice the promise that's given in this passage. It says right here in verse 3, direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And here's the great part of this. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Here's his promise. When we walk in genuine repentance and we begin to serve the Lord in the way and the example that we're being shown here, God will bring victory. I think sometimes we want the victory without the real repentance. We want our cake, right? And we want our ice cream, and we want our cookies, and we hope to never gain weight. But it doesn't work that way. We can't serve two masters. The second thing that we see here to his victory, then we see in verses five through seven. And it says, Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mitzpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mitzpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. It's confession of sin. Confession of sin. We want to experience God's victory in our life. It begins with genuine repentance and it moves to confession of sin. This confession of sin is not just the fact that I've harmed somebody. It's the fact that we've sinned against God and acknowledging the ways in which we've sinned against God. See, if we've sinned against man, we have most certainly sinned against God. And a lot of times we get that backwards. A lot of times we forget that our sin, when we do sin against man, we are actually sinning against God. All sin is first a sin against God. And God is calling us to confess that sin. In a place of humility, we have to be willing to confess that sin. Psalm twenty-two, fourteen, and I want to encourage you to write this passage down. Psalm twenty-two, fourteen says this. It says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. Now, when the Israelites came together, they poured out water, and then they fasted. This was a demonstration of the fact that they were basically emptying themselves completely before the Lord. They were coming before him and they were laying everything out and they were saying, listen, I am broken. Everything that is within me that is not of you, God, I have laid on the table. 
Part of confession is that God is working humility out in the midst of confession in our life. When we go before the Lord and the Lord already knows those sins, we are confessing that sin before the Lord. Ever confessed before the Lord before and heard what you've said? I think it's tough at that point to justify yourself before the Lord, isn't it? Ever hear yourself speak to the Lord about sin and slowly realize how defiled it is in his presence? Ever have to go to somebody and say, I need to ask your forgiveness because I've sinned against you? The exercise of confession of sin by its nature produces humility in our life. It's both the result of being humbled and the continuing work of humbling. In fact, that confession of sin means that we are no longer alone in our sin struggle, but now we have others who are able to partner with us in that struggle. In fact, James 5 tells us that we are to confess our sin to one another and pray for one another so that we might be healed. One of the reasons that we confess sin is so that we are no longer battling that sin alone. But it is placed before the Lord and it is placed before others and we begin to pray for one another so that we might be healed. First John 1.9. Caleb shared this a little bit earlier. But 1 John 1, 9 speaks of this confession. It does not say that if we confess it, that God will look at it and say, that's the worst thing I've ever heard. No way. What he says is this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What is his call? What is his promise? His promise is forgiveness. But it begins by seeing that our sin is against him first and foremost. A lot of our confession of sin and repentance begins not because we see the cost that it's causing the Lord, but rather we see the cost that it's causing us. If we only see us in the midst of our sin and the cost to us, we're not seeing the real effect of sin. The real effect of sin is upon the Lord. The real offense of sin is against the Lord. And so Samuel tells them, listen, walk in genuine repentance. Come forward and confess sin. And then he says this. He tells us here that there were those that as they gathered together, the Philistines then heard of this and they rose up against them. Now here's something that we need to take heart to. Whenever we commit our lives to Christ and whenever we are honestly and genuinely looking at sin in our life with a desire to remove it out, there will be spiritual warfare that takes place. 
The enemy will come with fervor. We need to not be surprised by that. I think too often we're surprised by that. It catches us off guard. And we go, gosh, Lord, I'm trying to walk with you today and I'm trying to give this all to you, but man, the temptation is coming at me from all angles. Don't be surprised. What you ought to take confidence in is is that the enemy is vying for you because he knows that God has got his grip on you. And we need to realize that when that happens, not to turn the other way and to give up and say it's worthless in this battle, but to rather engage more in Christ. And this is what he tells them. Notice the people then turn and they don't in this moment, although they're afraid of what is going to happen, they don't do what they've done in the past, which is just that box, that ark of God is over there. I guess we're just going to have to trust that it's fine. What they do is they run immediately to Samuel and they say, listen, do not cease in praying for us so that we might be saved. There's a prayerful dependence in Christ. A prayerful dependence in Christ. See, Samuel was the priest. They tell Samuel to pray on their behalf because Samuel is the one that is ministering before the Lord. He's the one that is going before the Lord and praying on behalf of the people. And it says here that Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel and the Lord answered him. Now listen, we don't have a Samuel, but we have a Savior. We have Jesus, who's not an earthly priest, but is a heavenly priest, an eternal priest, one that through the work of the cross gives us access to the Lord through him. Hebrews 9.24 says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God, for what? On our behalf. This is the God that goes before us. Jesus, we can come to Jesus. And he is pleading on our behalf with God. What an amazing thing. We have his spirit living within us for all those who have repented and believed on Christ. And if we're going to experience his victory, the dependence is not in our own strength, but it is in Christ. If we want to experience the victory of God in our life, we need to be a praying people. A people who find our dependence in the strength of Christ, not in ourselves. Jesus was given as the perfect sacrificial lamb. John 1.29 tells us that. And so Jesus is not only our priest. He's not only the one that has ministered on our behalf, but he's also the one who saves. 
Now notice what happens. It says here, and the Lord answered him. We're walking in genuine repentance, living a confessing life of identifying sin in our life and putting it before the Lord, and we're finding our prayerful dependence upon Christ. And what does it say? It said he answered them. He answered them. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. Okay, so the picture here is, in chapter four, they were going to battle. They were convinced they were going to win because the ark of the Lord was with them. And the Lord stays silent because God's not going to be your genie in a bottle. And he's not going to be my genie in a bottle. He is a God deserved of worship and glory. Now, the Israelites have been defeated. Frankly, they've been confused because the genie in the bottle didn't work for them. Now, they've humbled themselves, they've repented, they've turned away their idols, they've set them aside, they've looked only to the Lord to serve him only, they've come and they've confessed sin, and amazingly, all they have to offer in their victory is a dependence upon the priest and the work of God through the priest. Sound like anybody else? It's all we have to offer to. Our dependence upon Christ. Our dependence upon Christ. And so this God who was silent before now no longer is silent. He's a thundering God in power that sends the entire Philistine army into confusion and then into defeat with a simple noise, a simple noise. Can you imagine grumbling so loud that everybody became confused and you just whooped them? (laughs) There's a simplicity to this, right? And I think that's what Samuel wants us to see. God didn't even say a word. He just thundered. His power became known and revealed and seen and experienced. And the defeat was imminent. Now notice what happens. It says that Samuel took stone and set it up between Mitzvah and Shin, and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. That literal translation is, the Lord has helped us up till now. It's exactly what it means. That all along the way, the Lord has helped us. Now what's unique about this location is that Samuel is placing it 
this stone, this stone of remembrance in the exact location where they had been defeated 20 years earlier, 20 years and seven months to be exact. And there's importance here that even in their defeat, God was working and that God was working with them and that God was protecting them that by allowing them to experience that defeat, he showed them that their only victory could be found in him. And so we need to remember God's character here. That's what he's laying out. We need to remember his power, this thundering response that is far simpler than we think. What do I need to do, God? What do I need to do? And the Lord's looking at you saying, listen, walk in genuine repentance, confess sin, and depend on me. Wow. Walk in genuine depend- repentance, confess sin, and depend on me. And my power will go forth. The second aspect of his character is his faithfulness. You ever find that when you're in the midst of discouragement, That how God has worked past in your life and how you've seen God work past in your life becomes an encouragement? I know in my own life, even through some of the darkest days and struggles of wondering where God was at and where he was present, it was in those moments of looking back going, God, you have been faithful all along. We need to remember his faithfulness. When we're struggling to experience victory in our life, we need to remember God's faithfulness. He'll do it. He always has as we submit to him. Joni Erickson Tata, some of you know who she is. She's paralyzed in 1968 in a diving accident. And this is her one sentence. She says, my wheelchair is my Ebenezer. I've raised it up as a memorial to commemorate God's grace in my life. The moments, the struggles that she's seen where God has worked through that remind her of God's faithfulness and ongoing work. We need to have those things in our life that are those Ebenezer stones Especially as we look to experience the victory of Christ in our life. We're going to have days where we wonder if Christ is truly enough. But when we look at the stone, the cross, we're going to remember that he's enough. And notice The Israelites don't do the restoration. They don't bring the victory. It is God himself who brings the victory, completes the victory, and restores. It says the Philistines had taken from Israel, were restored to Israel. From Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. This was a nation that they constantly warred against, and yet they now had peace with it. And I want to encourage you to write this passage down because it's important, Proverbs 16, 7. And it says this, 
When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Isn't that awesome? When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. So God's victory begins with genuine repentance. It involves confession of sin and prayerful dependence in Christ. And then finally, verse 15 through 17 tell us about Samuel going throughout Israel as a judge. We need to be regularly hearing from God's word and worshiping him. Regularly hearing from God's word and worshiping him. See, Samuel was a judge who went throughout the, the nation judging. What he was bringing to the people was the word of God and carrying out justice. Calling them to a place of repentance and turning their hearts to the Lord. And in so doing, it says that he, in doing that, that at the final kind of capstone of that, he builds an altar to the Lord. That hearing from God's word and worship him, him were kind of synonymous. They went right together. Today, we have his written word. If we're going to be experienced in victory of God in our life, listen, Listen to the description of this scripture of Hebrews 4, 11, and some of you are familiar with that verse, but listen to it. Is this not what Samuel was doing? It says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Why was Samuel going throughout Israel? Because he did not walk, want them walking in the same disobedience. It says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We've been given the word of God. And if we're going to experience God's victory, we need to be regularly hearing from God's word. We need to be in it. And we need to worship him. Now notice what this doesn't say here. It doesn't say that every time that you go to the word of God that you're going to get something new. It doesn't even mean that every time that you go to the word of God that you're going to walk away and go, that was powerful, now I'm going and walking in strength. But it's the fact that we find our dependency and strength in God, knowing that God will and does speak through his word faithfully. We need to be regularly hearing it from him. And then we need to be worshiping him. We need to be living lives that are submitted before him. And the word of God at work within our lives will reveal our heart and continue to draw us back to the owner of our heart, who is Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your faithfulness towards us. Thank you for the fact that we can experience your victory in those moments, Lord, where we feel like you're far away, where it seems too hard. May we be reminded that what you've called us to is a life of genuine repentance.
of confession of sin, of dependence prayerfully upon you. Lord God, may we remember who you are and that it's your work that transforms us, not ours. And God, may we be people who are faithfully hearing from your word as we worship you. Lord God, let us experience the victory in your life, of our lives. Let you be the one, Father, that is working to bring that about in ways that we stand back and are amazed simply by submitting ourselves completely to you and serving you only. And we ask this in your name. Amen.